According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me, if you would, in the book of Philippians again, Philippians chapter 3. Rejoice in the Lord. To say so again is no problem. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same thing again is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard for you. Before we begin, let's take a moment for silent prayer to assure that we are filled with the Spirit, that we are humble under the authority of the Word of God. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we do come before you this morning thankful for your grace and truth, thankful for the blessing that we have to assemble together. Recognizing, Father, that this is a grace provision, that we don't earn this, we haven't deserved this. Father, we in ourselves cannot make any claim to be in your presence. But I thank you for the righteousness of Jesus Christ imputed to our account. I thank you for the standing that we have in him. And as we stand before you in his name, Father, we are workmen needing not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. So, Father, bless our study this morning, set aside our distractions, fix our eyes upon Jesus. I thank you in his most precious and holy name. Amen. All right. Take a moment to check the noise uh, status on our equipment. (laughs) There was a newsletter that went out that was uh, an admonishment to have some reverence and not be distractions. And uh, if my ringtone was to go off, that would be a distraction. Good thing we can double-check those things. All right, Philippians chapter 3. We're breaking this chapter down into four parts. And really, we have the meat of the book right here from 3.1 to 4.9. This is the essence of the book of Philippians. From 3.1 to 4.9 is the main address. With all the background information out of the way, Paul and Timothy exhort the Philippians to joyfully keep on pressing onward and upward. Onward and upward. And we're going to see that very quickly here in chapter 3. The main address begins with rejoice and beware. Really, it should be rejoice and beware, beware, beware. We're going to talk about that this morning, the triple use of blepo that we have there in verse 2. Beware, <clears throat> beware the dogs, beware the evil workers, beware the false circumcision. And so we have one rejoice imperative and three beware imperatives, which begins this section. Verses 1 through 6, though, stresses the spiritual reality of our sign and seal. The spiritual reality of our sign and seal. For Israel, it was circumcision. Circumcision was the sign of the covenant, the seal of the covenant. And it was physical, as a Mosaic law was uh, an earthly physical requirement for them to keep. Uh, we are the true circumcision. We are the spiritual circumcision. And uh, the reality that we have is spiritual in how we operate in Christ. And so we'll deal with that in verses 1 through 6. After summarizing his impressive credentials, Paul recategorizes them in his profit and loss statement, takes everything that should be profit, and he throws it over in the loss category. He says, I count it but loss. And he counts all of it but loss. And all of those credentials that are far better than anybody he was writing to, far better than uh, anyone else uh, of his generation could claim, and he said, throw it all away. It's rubbish. See? And so we'll make our own application with our own impressive credentials, the things that we think are things that we can count on or things that we think count for something, and uh, we will recategorize them. 
Thirdly, verses 13 through 16, this humble attitude equips us all to keep pressing on the upward way, just like the hymn that I like. I'm pressing on the upward way, new heights I'm gaining every day. Okay, it's, it's higher ground. It's a marvelous hymn, and yet this is the scripture that underlies that, that we do forget what lies behind, we reach forward. We want to, uh, can, we want to lay hold of that for which also we were laid hold of by Christ Jesus. So it's always forward moving, always onward and upward. Finally then, the chapter concludes with a warning against those who are earthly minded and fail to esteem our heavenly citizenship. Verses 17 through 21 that stresses our citizenship is in heaven and we should be heavenly focused. And if we're not heavenly focused, that's a problem. And if we have people around us that are not heavenly focused, that's a problem because they can rub off on us. We can follow the wrong example. And uh, to, to the extent that their God is their belly, and that's, uh, that's not good. And we've got to talk about the different appetites that, that can be, food, alcohol, sex, money, fame, any number of appetites that can be the belly represented there that uh, becomes an idol, becomes a God that, that we serve. Humanity will be very quick to serve those things. So these are the four segments of the chapter, 1 through 6, 7 through 12, 13 through 16, and 17 through 21. So this morning we're dealing with rejoice in the Lord, and it starts our, with that exact point, rejoice in the Lord. And uh, so far we've covered most of this actually. And uh, I'll skip through subpoints A, B, and C. There's some subpoints there. Remember that phrase, in the Lord, is not just a throwaway phrase. That phrase, in the Lord, is actually significant with respect to hoping in the Lord, praying in the Lord, desiring in the Lord, uh, trusting in the Lord, the different expressions that we have. Here we have, uh, you know, the last chapter we had hope, and here we have hope again. And so uh, we want to understand that. Here we have rejoicing, rejoicing in the Lord. And so that mechanism of in the Lord, what does that mean? It means we're in fellowship and we're occupied with Jesus Christ. If we're not in fellowship, if we're not doing anything in the Lord, you know, forget hoping in the Lord if you're out of fellowship, forget rejoicing in the Lord if you're out of fellowship. You can't do anything in the Lord when you're carnal. Likewise, you have to be occupied with Christ, abiding in the Word of God. If you're not, then it's not in the Lord, see, with respect to that. So those two are the elements there. Repetition is a protection, not a problem. And the vocabularies where we ran out of time on Wednesday, we'll pick up on that because we're dealing with osphalase and we're dealing with acneros. Osphalase and acneros. These are our expressions. And I fixed the slide. I had left some of the definitions off. So there they are. Repetition is a protection, not a problem. To review it a second time helps. To review it a third time helps. A fourth time helps. You finally get it ingrained in the more you hear it. And that's true for all of us. It's not picking on the Philippians because they're slow on the uptake or picking on Austin Bible Church or I'll pick on myself. I want to hear it you know, again and again and again until it sticks, until it sinks in. And uh, this is uh, a protection. And uh, the word for protection here, the word for safeguard is interesting because it's used in other... other uh, context for something that you're going to make certain. You want, you want facts to be certain. You want things to be definite. You want, to, you want to clear away the confusion. And so if you have to hear it a second time, you have to hear it a third time, you have to have it again and again and again just so that we're clear. Let's, let's have all of the uh, confusion taken away. Let's have all the certainty in place. And so that's what we talk about with asphalase, all right? And uh, particularly in the Luke, uh, or the book of Acts usage is there. So where it's certain, okay? 
And real quickly, because we touched on them on Wednesday, but we can look at them again, we won't spend a lot of time. Acts 21, 34, we talk about a safeguard. What do we mean by a safeguard? Well, it means we're being certain on what we know. What we know and why we know it. So Acts 21, 34, um, of course, here's Paul causing trouble again. <laughs> and so... Uh, the, uh, the Roman cohort hears about it, the commander hears about it. And uh, so he took along some soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the commander and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. And the commander came up and took hold of him, ordered him to be bound with two chains and began asking who he was and what he had done. But among the crowd, some were shouting one thing and some another. And when he could not find out the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. All right. Now this is where we have this term, and this is why I was saying it's somewhat idiomatic, it's somewhat, uh, as far as the various usages are concerned, they're not always going to be as clear or always going to be as obvious. But when it says there, when he could not find out the facts, that's what we're talking about with respect to this safeguard, to repeat the, these things as a safeguard for you, that it helps us to get the facts straight, helps us to get the things down certainly, with a certitude, with a certainty that uh, we need to have them. And so that's the, uh, the idiomatic usage of asphalase there. Next chapter over in 2230. Uh, it says, on the next day, and again, it's another trial, it's another circumstance, and uh, the, the, the centurion's involved here and he's got a bunch of questions. Uh, the commander came and said to him in verse 27, tell me, are you a Roman? He said, yes. And the commander answered, I acquired this citizenship with a large sum of money. And Paul said, but I was actually born a citizen. Therefore, those who were about to examine him immediately let go of him. And the commander also was afraid when he found out that he was a Roman because he had put him into chains. See, And so he wasn't showing the correct uh, deference and the, the legal protections that a Roman citizen would have. But on the next day, wishing to know for certain, this is our expression, why he had been accused by the Jews, he released him and ordered the chief priests and all the council to assemble and brought, uh, and brought Paul down and set him before them. And so we have, again, the value. How many trials does it take? How many hearings does it take? How many times do we have to recount the Damascus Road experience? How many times do we have to hear the testimony? But by doing so, the repetition serves a purpose and it makes things certain. It locks the details into place. It gives us a safeguard by which all of us can hear. Did you hear what the pastor said? I don't think he said that. Well, let's ask him again. Did, did you mean to say it this way? What did you mean by that? And so we say it again and we say it again. And we get other witnesses down to say it again. You know, I heard my father say something on Saturday. Seriously? Okay, and I bring my brother over on a Sunday. Say, can you say that again? And uh, the two of us want to hear what you just said. All right? We want a certainty with respect to, and that becomes a safeguard. So I like the translation safeguard. Um, it's just uh, a little bit idiomatic to understand the, the, the nature of why it's being translated safeguard that way in Philippians 3 1. Uh, over in uh, Acts 25 26. The third use here in the book of Acts. And now he's yet again on trial, and he's standing before Agrippa this time in this chapter. 
a paragraph beginning in verse 23. So on the next day, when Agrippa came together with Bernice, or Vernus, my mother's name, uh, amid great pomp and entered into the auditorium accompanied by the commanders and the prominent men of the city, uh, at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. So here we go again. And um, Festus said, King Agrippa and all you gentlemen here present with us, you see this man about whom all the people of the Jews appeal to me both at Jerusalem and here, loudly declaring that he ought not live any longer. But I found that he had committed nothing worthy of death. And since he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to send him. Yet I have nothing definite about him to write to my Lord. And that expression, nothing definite, speaks of certain, speaks of uh, you know clear facts, something that he can nail down, something he can lock down. And so, you know, Agrippa is, uh, or Festus is, uh, you know, hoping Agrippa can help him out here. <laughs> you know, I want to, I want to send him off to Rome, but I don't know what to put in my report. I don't know what to say. I have nothing definite about him to write to my Lord. Therefore, I brought him before you, before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after the investigation has taken place, I may have something to write. For it seems absurd to me in sending a prisoner not to indicate also the charges against him. <laughs> Doesn't it? I would think so. If the police arrest you and put you in jail and make you stand before the judge, then yeah, you expect that the police are going to have something in writing to tell the judge why you're there. <laughs> and uh, it's just kind of kind of you know nonsensical to stand somebody there and say, well, he deserves to die. That's That's not how justice operates. That's not how the court operates. And so in all these cases, there is a desire on the part of, of uh, these people, all of them involved in government, all of them involved in, in, in legal matters. They want to know things with certainty. They want to have it locked down. They want to have the facts confirmed. So they want to know definitely what's happening here. And that, I think, is, is what sits underneath the the idea of a safeguard. When Paul says to write the same things, again, is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard for you. I think that's the, the indication there, that it becomes a confirmation. It becomes a, a certainty. It, it, it allows you to put things down definitely where uh, you, you have uh, stability. And that then becomes the usage in, uh, in Hebrews. Hebrews 6.19 and if, in fact, Luke is the same author of Acts with Hebrews, that makes it interesting. But Luke, uh, Hebrews 6, 19 then, we talk about what we know and, uh, and how sure is our salvation and how stable should we be in our Christian walk. And so um, we learn in, of course, in verse 16, men swear by one greater than themselves, and with them an oath is given as confirmation. Uh, it's the end of every dispute. And so that helps to add to the certainty that uh, someone is vowing something, somebody is declaring the truthfulness of it. We put our hand on a Bible, we raise our right hand, we say, so help me God. We're calling deity to witness the truthfulness of this, taking an oath that the God of truth will hold us to. And, uh, and so this is a, a means by which information can be locked down. It can be made definite. It can be made sure and steadfast. In the same way, God, <clears throat> desiring even more to show to the heirs of the, 
of the promise, the unchangeableness of his purpose, God interposed with an oath. And so this then becomes, you know, it's like you're doubling infinity because God cannot lie. And so we understand why men will take an oath. Men are a bunch of liars, okay? And if with a fear of God or some kind of external motivation to help them to, to tell the truth, uh, the, the fear of God or the fear of, of some God, a pagan God or whatever, uh, the idea that, uh, that uh, they're going to be held accountable, uh, that, that the charge of, of perjury has such uh, consequences that you're not going to go back on your oath. Well, here's God who cannot lie, and yet he takes an oath. So now we have two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie. We who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. If you and I are born-again believers in Jesus Christ, then we have no reason to let hold of our hope. We have no reason to let go of that of the, 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 the hope that we have in Christ. See, we are to hold fast. We have this great confession. He's the apostle and the high priest of our confession. Why would we let that go? Look at what he's done to bring us here. Look what he did to provide us eternal life. Look what he did to make us righteous. Look what he did to invest us in this priesthood. Is there, do we have any reason to let go of that? None. None whatsoever. And so this hope we have as an anchor of the soul, it locks it down. It's stable. When a, when a boat is anchored at the bottom of whatever, it's, it's fixed. It's not going anywhere. And so we have a spiritual anchor for the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil. The term for surety there is our expression, is our asphales that we have there. And so, you know, you got, you got a, a word that's um, it's used five times in the New Testament, and it has five separate translations in the English language, <laughs> from facts to certain to definite to safeguard to sure. You realize that's a, that's a rascally little animal, and it's hard to, hard to put into a cage, and yet... I think it's it's on purpose that way, right? Because God is using the perfect word to show us that we want to get these rascally little animals put into a cage. We want to we want to lock it down. We want to we want to grab hold of it. We want to know what we're dealing with. So to me, it's a, kind of a nice um, feature that God's doing there. All right, and then the uh, the second expression when He says it's not a problem. It's not trouble. It's not, and this also becomes an idiomatic expression. It's not laziness. He says, to do so again is not laziness on my part. It's no trouble for me. And uh, if that seems awkward, um, where do idioms come from anyway? <laughs> why, why do we say no sweat? You know, well, because sweat is a feature of working hard. <laughs> okay? And so if I'm working hard, I'm sweating. When Christopher comes home from mowing seven yards, he's sweating because it's 104 degrees outside and whatever. And he, all he wants to do is just strip everything off and get a shower because he's sweating. He's working hard. His sister sees the blisters on his hands and all the testimony of good hard work. All right? And then I joke about you know, carpal tunnel and the mouse. The, yeah, I put in a lot of mouse effort on a particular day with the 
computer in my air-conditioned office. That doesn't go over well at all either. And so we have idioms, and idioms communicate. So we know what no sweat means, okay? We know what no lazy, well, maybe we don't, we don't use it the same way, but back then they would say no lazy, okay? And no lazy meaning, hey, I can do this again. I'll do it again. I'll do it again and again and again. I'm not so lazy I won't do it again. I'll keep doing it. Anyway, um, and uh, this is the, the idiom here. It's only used three times in the New Testament. There's a couple of usages in Proverbs and the Septuagint that are, that are good to know. But uh, in Matthew 25, 26, we have the expression, you wicked, lazy slave. Okay? Do you, want to, do you want to hear that of the judgment seat of Christ? I don't want to hear that of the judgment seat of Christ. And so we want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. We want to hear the, uh, the recognition that, yes, we're saved by grace, but we're walking in that grace and we're going to work harder than anybody else. Grace is not a go to laziness. Grace is just the opposite. If you fully digest grace and the impact of grace in your life, you'll be the hardest working guy out there because you're grace-oriented. And so... The, uh, the laziness expression is there. Likewise, uh, it's in Romans twelve eleven, where we are fervent, where we are diligent in our service one to another. Romans 12. Make sure I don't misquote this. <clears throat> this is the, uh, I don't know what you can think of this, the constitution for a local church. I mean, this is, this is a recipe for how a flock gets along, how a flock serves one another, how a flock operates. In verses 9 and following, Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. All of these are recipes for how a flock operates in, in, in uh, the will of God, in the church age. And then it says, Not lagging behind in diligence not lagging behind in diligence. And the onkeros there, okneros, I'm sorry, O-K-N-E-R-O-S, okneros. My dyslexia rereads that with an N-K. It's a K-N, okneros. And uh, uh, not lagging, not lagging behind. Let's face it, we're humans, we're lazy. And uh, that's, a, that's, a, that's a carnality snare. All right. God put Adam in the garden to work it. We're designed to work. And so when we drift, when we get negligent, and it's, uh, it doesn't have to be full-scale rebellion, it could just be simply uh, uh, drifting and uh, maybe not working as hard as I could be working. And uh, the, the passive negative volition that starts that slide to where, you very, uh, where you, uh, you're, you're drifting on that spectrum, as it were. And so not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. And that's, uh, that's the, be- the best reminder of all when you realize that this brother, this sister, this where you, you're kind of curious, am I, am I running out of patience? <laughs> am I running out of diligence? Well, stop and remind yourself who you're working for. Who are you serving? You're serving the Lord. Is the Lord worth it? You know, quit looking at the person and saying, well, they're not worth it or what have they done for me lately? You're, you're, you're serving the Lord. And what's the Lord done for you lately? Well, he died for you, gave you eternal life. He took the wrath for your sins upon himself. All right, so let's stop being uh, relative in our righteousness and relative in our, in our pursuits. And let's go back to the absolute basis of, of uh, God and, uh, and operate that way. So not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, 
serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. And so all those ings, rejoicing, persevering, we've got to turn devoted into an ing, contributing, practicing, all of those ings are uh, part of this, all right? Unhypocritical love and serving one another in the body of Christ. We can't be lazy about it. We can't be lazy about it. In Proverbs, it's the sluggard. In Proverbs 6, verses 6 and 9, go to the ant, O sluggard, observe her ways and be wise. And so the Septuagint Greek from Proverbs 6 translates the Hebrew there with this term, with this akneros uh, adjective. Go to the ant, O sluggard, observe her ways and be wise. Uh, which having no chief, officer, or ruler, prepares her food in the summer, gathers her provision in the harvest. How long will you lie down, O sluggard, and when will you arise from your sleep? Rhetorical question. The sluggard won't answer it honestly. <laughs> you know? uh, how long? See, this is the thing. It becomes, uh, it becomes habit forming. It becomes a new way of life. It becomes a new rut that we get comfortable with. And uh, so just a little bit leads to more. And that's what the song is all about. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. Just a little bit more, a little bit more, just a little bit more, okay? This, is the, the, this, is, this verse right here is the very first snooze alarm ever invented in the uh, history of mankind. This is just hit the button for five more minutes, okay? And uh, five more minutes, five more minutes, Okay? And you realize you just had two hours of five more minutes. Just, you know, what are you doing? What are you doing? And so uh, that's what we deal with there. All right. So to write the same thing again is no problem for me and it's a safeguard for you. It's not laziness on my part. Hey, I'm able to do it. Then we get to the warnings. Beware, beware, beware. Watch out for the KKK. Philippians 3. Now, what do I mean by that? Watch out for the KKK. It's actually Kappa, Kappa, Kappa. It looks like an English letter KKK because the Latin Kappa or the Latin K looks like the Greek Kappa. Um, But that's what we have here. We have beware, beware, beware. And all three things that are mentioned there all start with Kappa. And uh, that's on purpose, all right? Even uh, when he changes words and comes up with expressions, uh, for example, the mutilation as opposed to the true circumcision, uh, he, he uses a play on words there to communicate that. And uh, all of these, kun, uh, from, from the dogs to the evil workers to the, to the mutilation, they all start with kappa. And I'll be showing that here in a moment. But it's beware, beware, beware. Now... Bleppo is the verb for beware, and believe it or not, there is a huge argument on this verse, and it's been raging for decades, been raging for a long, long time, probably longer than that, but a, um, a very convincing study was done in the early 1900s that got a lot of people's attention. I'm going to uh, share that with you here this morning. Great study by Kilpatrick, by the way, as he addresses this. Beware may not strictly be the best sense but its triple repetition makes it stronger than a simple admonishment to take due note of. To take a due note of. Okay? And so 
Blepo is a verb that means to see, and when it's a command, then it's a command. So look at this, okay? And it can be a positive admonishment to look at something. Look at the ant, for example. It's not saying beware of the ants, right? It's not something to, uh, to be afraid of or to guard against. They're not attacking you at the moment, but you can look at them. They're not fire ants. They're, you know, you're, you're looking at them because you want to watch their example and you want to learn from something you can readily see. And that is probably the better way to handle it here, to observe, to look to, and learn from. And so much as that goes, if you fail to learn from it, then yeah, it then can be thought of as a warning. But it's, it, it may not be as strong as a beware. Okay, And so this is really what it comes down to. And sometimes... When the arguments are going back and forth, they're, they're working very, very hard to prove their point. And it's, it's curious to me that sometimes, even when they prove their point, you still end up at the same place the other guy ended up, right? Even if, even if you don't want to translate it as beware, and even if they're not in danger of the dogs, the, false, the uh, evil workers and the mutilation, they still have to learn from the example of the dogs, the false workers, and the mutilation. So fundamentally speaking, it's the same message either way you want to take it. We'll talk about that. All right. Take due note of. Now there are some idiomatic expressions here. And so 1 Corinthians one twenty six, ten eighteen, Colossians 4.18. And I think on all of these you'll see what I'm talking about. If you're just going to look at something look at something. That doesn't mean you have to beware of it. But you do want to look at it so that you learn from it. 1 Corinthians one twenty six. You see what I'm talking about. And the word is blepo. I didn't write that down. B-L-E-P-O. And you can find a strong number for it if you want. Um, 1 Corinthians one twenty six. Consider your calling, brethren. Okay, doesn't mean it's it's an imperative and it's blepo. I want to translate it: beware, beware of your calling, brethren. Okay, so just because it's the imperative of blepo doesn't mean we have to use a beware. See, you can consider, look at it. There were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, and so consider that. Consider the grace of God that saved you. Consider that you didn't earn it. You didn't deserve it. And now, how are you going to live? How are you going to work out your salvation? So as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. So we wouldn't say, beware of your calling, Brandon. That, that's, that doesn't make any sense. And yet it's, it's imperative of blepo. How about chapter 10 and verse 18? Look at the nation Israel. And uh, so, talk about partaking of the cup, partaking of the bread. Verse 14, he says, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak to wise men, you ju- as to wise men, you judge what I say. So he says, I'm just going to make the case. You, you, you tell me. Is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? This is our fellowship. When we take communion, since there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. 
Look at the nation Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices sharers in the altar? And so, yeah, the, the Levitical priesthood and the nation of Israel, are they not, uh, don't they eat the sacrifices? Are they not sharers in the altar? What do I mean then? The thing sacrificed to idols is anything? That idol is anything? Anyway, it goes on to talk about idolatry and why you don't want to drink the cup of demons and the cup of the Lord and, and those different things. But the point being is in verse 18, we have an imperative of blepo like we have in Philippians 3 2. And we wouldn't translate that beware. We wouldn't say, uh, you know, beware the nation of Israel. Like, you know, they're suited up for battle and they're coming to get you. Okay? So there are other ways to handle the imperative of blepo, whereby in a positive admonishment that we are taking note of, look at these guys and learn from that example. Look at these guys and, and see what the application is. Look at this, look at this, see. And it doesn't have to be as forceful as a beware. If there's no danger involved, then, then it wouldn't have to be a beware. Finally, Colossians 4.17 Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. So, um, verse 14, Luke, the beloved physician, sends you his greetings. Also, Demas, he hasn't abandoned me yet. Demas says hi. Greet the brethren who are in Laodicea. Also, Nympha and the church that is in her house. When this letter is read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. So make a copy and send it over there. And you, for your part, read my letter that is coming from Laodicea. What letter is that? Is that in our Bible? Okay. And say to Archippus, take heed to the ministry which you have received in the Lord that you may fulfill it. Now, blepo in the imperative there is translated as take heed to the ministry, and we wouldn't translate that beware of the ministry which you have received. We wouldn't it'd be wrong to translate that as beware. The, the ministry is not coming to attack you or, or hurt you in any way. But it is an imperative of blepo, so keep your eyes where they're supposed to be. Keep your eyes fixed on the ministry Jesus put you in. Take heed to the ministry which you have received. Notice, in the Lord. You can receive a ministry in the Lord. There's that phrase again. It's meaningful every time we see it. And so take heed. So beware. Quote unquote beware. May not be the best sense. And it may not be the best translation. But we have to translate it somehow and we have to do it three times. Because it is used in a triple repetition. Beware, beware, beware. Or look out for, look out for, look out for. Or observe, observe, observe. Or, you know, take due note of the dogs, take due note of the evil workers, take due note of the circumcision. And so there's a huge fight in the, in the literature, in the journals, as far as, well, it should be a command, it should not be a command. Well, even if it's not a command, even if it's just an admonishment, it's still repeated three times. And so my thinking is that the triple repetition makes it stronger than a simple admonishment to take due note of. It may not be as forceful as a beware because likely the threat he's talking about is a Jewish threat and they didn't have Jews in, in Philippi. 
They didn't have, it wasn't a big deal there. There wasn't even a synagogue there. And so, not like the Galatian churches, not like Ephesus, the Jews were a huge problem in Ephesus, probably why Paul was in jail. Because the Jews stirred him up and, and riots were happening, no small disturbance was happening. Uh, but Philippi didn't have that issue. And so I don't think beware is uh, what we're dealing with. We talk about Kilpatrick here. Let me just read this and not to spend a ton of time on it. This is the New International Greek Testament commentary. Uh, forget the author. O'Brien, Peter T. O'Brien, in the NIC, NIGTC. And if you don't have the NIGTC, I do recommend it. Great critical stuff here with the language. Um, Somewhat abruptly and without any grammatical connection with the preceding, the apostle uses the imperative blapeta three times in quick succession to admonish his readers to pay close attention to the dogs, the evil workers, and the mutilators. Three noun phrases in the accusative case. Each has the definite article and each begins with kappa. Are the objects of the thrice-repeated verb as the apostle gives rhetorical expression to the very deep concern he has about the seriousness of the problem that faces his friends. Blapeta tus kunas, blapeta tus kakus, uh, ergatas, blapeta tin katatamein. And so that's what we're talking about there. That's, uh, there's your blapeta, blapeta, blapeta. There's your tus kunas, tus kakus ergatus, and tin katamein. All right, so you see three blapetas, three definite articles, and three kappa expressions. Beware of those dogs, beware of those evildoers, beware of those mutilators. This threefold admonition is syntactically unconnected with the preceding verse, uh, although see above. And the three clauses with the imperative blapeta at the head of each are grammatically unrelated. However, it is clear from their content that each is describing the same people from a slightly different angle. All right, and I agree, although that gets debated as well. Okay, a lot of puzzles in chapter three including the fact, are these three different enemies or one enemy in, with three different terms? Okay, uh, uh, I think it's one enemy with three different terms. And are they really an unseen enemy that's a danger to them? Or is this a, a distant enemy that you don't want to even let them in the door? Okay, And that's how I'm taking it. And, uh, the, lit- and the, the, the commentaries and scholars, they also are pretty divided as far as the people here in the early chapter, are they the same people as the as the enemies at the end of the chapter, the, the, the belly god people, that, that whose enemies of the cross of Christ, who, who set their mind on earthly things. Um, so, you know, is he warning about that same group now a second time at the end of the chapter that he was warning about in the first part of the chapter? I don't think so. I, I make those a different group, all right? And so these are all the, the, the interpretive decisions you have to come to when you're working your way through the text. And the conclusions I've come to are, are just that, all right? So this early group are the Jews. The uh, later group is somebody else. Continuing from O'Brien here. The verb lapeta has usually been translated ha- here as beware of, be on your guard against, or watch out for. And as a result, the apostle's exhortation has been regarded as a warning against the Philippians' opponents, that is, the dogs, evil workers, and mutilators. However, uh, Kilpatrick has argued that blepo means beware of, and uh, there's a citation there for Kilpatrick, and uh, called In Memoriam, 
and I can get you a full citation if you want in the bibliography. He has argued that blepo means be aware of in the New Testament and related literature when it is followed, notice now, and this gets technical, but just follow. In the New Testament and related literature, when it is followed either by an objective clause with may and the aorist subjunctive, or future indicative, so beware lest, in which case it's, it's telling you not to do something. It's talking about a verbal activity that you can be do. So beware lest. Or, secondly, by the preposition of apo. The preposition apo. So beware of, blepo of, look out for. And if you have either of those two circumstances, then the blepo imperative is perfectly fine to render it as beware, and that's exactly the sense, and that's exactly how it should be rendered, and that's the idea. On the other hand, if it is followed by a direct object in the accusative case, as it is here at Philippians 3.2, blepeta does not mean beware of. Instead, it signifies consider or take due note of. Okay, And this was his conclusion, and this was his study, and what did he do to verify this? He found every use of blepo in all the literature imaginable, from the New Testament to the Septuagint to the Church Fathers to the secular Greek of the day, and, and laid out the cases in which it, it means beware, and the cases where if it has a direct object in the accusative case, it does not mean beware. Another citation. After examining 58 instances in the New Testament of blepo with the accusative, Kilpatrick concluded that in no case is it so used with the meaning beware of. A similar state of affairs occurred in the Apostolic Fathers, and Kilpatrick reported that this usage was the same in the Septuagint. On blepeta with the accusative, and meaning to look at or to consider, um, take a note at Butman's Grammar, pages 242 to 243, and also Weiner, G.B. Weiner, and his grammar on page 280. All right. So accordingly, G.B. Baird, following Kilpatrick, concluded, Paul is not warning them to be on constant guard against a Jewish menace, but holding the Jews up for consideration as a cautionary example. And I would agree. And I would agree. And the threefold repetition does make it stronger, but nevertheless, it is a cautionary example for people that aren't on the scene in Philippi. They aren't there with an imminent danger, but it is something to not let, not let even start, not let even walk in the door. Uh, D.E. Garland adds that Blapetta draws attention to an admonitory example for the Philippians, not an external danger stealing upon them. But doubts have been raised about this linguistic distinction. There have been later studies that um, have, namely Silva and Schenk, uh, that have, uh, and Blast and Brunner and Funk, that have um, called into question some of Kilpatrick's conclusions and asked, you know, do we have enough evidence to lock it in and say it's a rule and there are no exceptions? Um, so they've raised doubts about it. Further, it does not take into account the threefold blepeta which in the present context indicates some urgency. And they're right. When the skeptics have said, well, Kilpatrick has not answered the fact that this is the only place in the world we've got the triple use. We've got the, the, the blepeta, blepeta, blepeta. You know? And so to try to 
put a rule down and say this is what it always means when this is the one and only place where we've got the, the triple use is, uh, is tough to do. On balance, we, and this is the uh, O'Brien and the, the committee that's writing the NIGTC commentary, on balance, we regard the Apostle's imperative as a warning that refers to opponents who had, as yet had not made serious inroads into the life of the congregation. And I would agree, because as of the time of the writing of the New Testament, through Acts 17, 18, 19, through all that, there was no synagogue in, uh, in Philippi. There, were no, there was no significant Jewish population there. Anyway, if you want more on that, Meyer, Vincent, Kennedy, Jewett, Martin, Bruce. All right. They weigh in as well. All right. So that's enough on that. Uh, and, and truly, we just spent 15 minutes to describe one way or the other. Yes, sir? I think so. I agree. No, I agree with that. And, and this is why tempest in a teapot is a good expression. Um, a lot of the back and forth, same thing happens with manuscript questions and spelling questions and different things. Say, so, okay, if I go this way, what, where do I end up? And if I go this way, where do I end up? Where does that leave me? And for personal application then, for the Philippians or for Austin Bible Church, uh, the application is, we don't want that. <laughs> the dogs, the evil workers, the mutilation. So whether they are an imminent threat or whether they are a distant threat or whether it's beware or just look out for or learn from, still, the application is the same. We're not going to be unclean dogs. We're not going to be workers of, of evil. We're not going to be mutilators. All right. We're not going to be legalists that destroy congregations. Okay. And so, uh, you're right. The, uh, at the end of the day, the application is the same regardless of whether we want to translate it as beware or look to. Subpoint B. Dogs, evil workers, mutilation. They all begin with a Greek letter kappa. They all begin with a Greek letter kappa and they are all descriptive of Jewish arrogance. All descriptive of Jewish arrogance. They're also hilarious. Because Paul uses the very insults that the Jewish people would use towards the Gentiles and he throws it right back at them. The Jews typically would call Gentiles a bunch of dogs. Paul calls them dogs. Okay? You know how insulting that is? These terms invert typical Jewish boasts so as to highlight the spiritual realities. The Jews would consider Gentiles as the workers of iniquity because the Gentiles don't have the law. The Jews are the ones that have the law. The Jews are the ones that are God's chosen people. The Jews are the do-gooders, right? You read Romans 1, you got those Gentile evil people. Read Romans 2, you got those Jewish good people, 
And clearly the Jews are better than the Gentiles, right? But Romans 3 says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And that the Jewish religious depravity in Romans 2 is no better than the Gentile immoral depravity of Romans chapter 1. And so calling, uh, calling Gentiles evil workers, Paul says you guys are the evil workers. Calling Gentiles dogs, Paul says you guys are the dogs. Calling Gentiles the uncircumcised, while we are the holy circumcised, Paul says you're not the circumcised, you're the mutilated you're the mutilated. And he twists the word for circumcision, peritome, and he twists it to katatome in order to, to flip it around and throw it right back at him. And he says, you're the, you're the mutilation. We're the circumcision. You're the mutilation. And so, uh, very rhetorical, very powerful. A Greek reader, a Greek listener would have heard this would have would have uh, gone through this okay so beware of the dogs now this uh like i say i've been looking forward to preaching this for a long long time i don't like dogs and i've made no secret of that okay and uh, many people in my flock are dog lovers and they and god bless you all right and uh we ought to just have a have a potluck sometime where we bring in we just bring in our dogs and uh we can no all right. Yeah, we're getting the floors done this week. We don't want to do the. And so I get that. All right. And this is uh, this is not a pet thing. This is not an animal thing. This is an idiomatic expression to talk about the uh, the uncleanness because the dog is a scavenger. The dog is an unclean animal. The dog is uh, is not uh, spoken of favorably in the Old Testament or New Testament, and. Uh, We'll take a look at the religious expression here in a moment. The um, the things to beware of. And so, all kidding aside, okay. My my childhood scarring that's left me permanently damaged for the rest of my life. Uh, God can overcome that maybe in the resurrection, uh, but probably not <laughs> as far as that goes. All right, kunas, kunas. This is our word for dogs. And it is the accusative masculine plural from kuon. So when it says blapeta tus kunis, that's an accusative plural form. The uh, lexical form that you'll find is in, in uh, the, the uh, dictionaries is kuon. Okay? That's your lemma. That's your lexical form is kuon. K-U-O-N. Kappa, upsilon, omega, nu. K-U-O-N. Kuon. And uh, five New Testament uses. Okay, and not many Septuagint uses beyond that. Uh, the Bible doesn't talk a lot about dogs other than to say that they're unclean and look out for them and don't throw, what is, uh, don't throw your bread to the dogs or cast your pearls before swine. Okay? Uh, the, the dog references we have in the Bible are all negative as we uh, deal with that. Let me put them up side by side so you can see them. Evil workers. Now evil is kakos. And then ergates is a worker. So it's blapeta tus kakus ergatas, the evil workers, workers of evil. And again, you get that kappa in there because of the kakos in evil. Accusative masculine plural, kakos, K-A-K-O-S. 
used 50 times. And so there we've got a lot more to look at. And we're not going to look at them, but I'm just showing them to you. Uh, evil. Uh, kalos is good, kakos is evil, and we have the adjectives there. 2556 is the strongest number for kakos. It's used 50 times. Ergates is, uh, is a worker from ergodzomai, from ergo, ergon. All of our ergonomic English expressions come from this. Uh, ergates is 16 times. And usually Paul uses them of his fellow workers uh, that are called his ergatai, his fellow workers. So we have dogs, we have workers of evil. And again, you'll notice they are accusative, masculine, plural, direct objects with a definite article. The qualities that Kilpatrick said, anytime you have blepeta with an accusative noun in the, as a direct object, it's not beware, but it's observe, it's look to. Okay, And that's what we have here. And masculine plural means there's lots of them. Okay? There's no shortage of dogs. There's no shortage of, of evil workers. There's plenty of them. When you get to mutilation, it's singular. It's accusative singular. Mutilation. Accusative singular. Beware the katatamein. And it's accusative masculine singular. Comes from katatame, number 2699, uh, K-A-T-A-T-O-M-E. And... Uh, uh, to cut, to cut off, you get, um, we have some ectomy terms, right? If, if something gets ectomized. <laughs> anyway, it gets cut off. We know how that works. And uh, that's what a circumcision is in, in terms of, 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 uh, of that. And then we'll have the, the real word for circumcision in the next verse when Paul says, for we are the circumcision, the para, the peritome. But he changes to the kata, to not only insult it, but to, to keep everything with a kappas and to, to uh, make the point that he's making. So accused of masculine singular of katatame. And uh, to put it in the singular, it's only used here, by the way. It's like Paul invents it, coins it, puts it here. The only place in the New Testament the katatame shows up. But, it, but there's plural dogs, there's plural evil workers, there's only one mutilation. There's only one it's a singular. And so we're talking about a sphere. We're talking about a realm. We're talking about legalistic Judaism. Okay? We're talking about non-Christian Judaism. This is the issue here. What happens when you have a body of people waiting for their Messiah, waiting for their Messiah, waiting for their Messiah, the Messiah comes and they reject Him, say, that's not Him. And they crucify Him and say, that's not Him. And then here we are 20 years after the cross and this crowd is persecuting those that are naming the name of Christ. And they're boasting in the flesh. And in fact, everything that we see here in verse 3, when Paul says, we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, that's a threefold rebuke for the dogs, the evil workers, and the mutilation. The three things Paul says we're not doing is the three things they're doing. And they, uh, they're not worshiping in the Spirit of God. They're worshiping in the flesh. They're not glorying in Christ Jesus. They're glorying in themselves. And they're not putting conf- or they are putting confidence in the flesh. And that's what sparks him to give all of his Pharisee credentials that he gives in the following verses there.
All right. So it's singular. And I think it's curious to me uh, when, when you have these plural nouns and then a singular sphere, as it were, uh, it's similar to what we deal with when we have elders and when we have, uh, for example, you have a plurality of presbyt- uh, presbyterioi and then we have a singular, uh, or presbyteron, I'm sorry, a plurality of elders, but they come together in a single body called the presbytery. Or you have plural overseers, but they come together into the office of overseer. And that's always singular. And the singular expression is used of the office or the sphere or the realm. And that's what we have here. So it's the realm of the mutilation. He's not saying mutilators. That would be plural, like dogs and evil workers. It's mutilation singular as a realm, as a scope of those that are in the mutilation, whereas we are the circumcision, the true circumcision in, uh, in the application there. Anyway, um, we do have contrasting nouns, kata versus peri. Uh, the word that we're seeing here, kata tamein, we're going to see in the next verse is peri tamein. We'll get into that Wednesday night. It is a similar word play that's used by uh, Diogenes of Sinope. Um, do you know who Diogenes was? He... Um, he He's in hell today, it's unfortunate, he was an unbeliever. Uh, but he was uh, a philosopher, he was a writer, he was uh, a, a cynic. In fact, some would say he was the, the, the founder of the cynic movement. Uh, I think he was probably, well, he, he followed somebody uh, and then became the second cynic and probably greater than the first cynic. Every, every cynic has to outdo the cynic before then, that's, that's kind of a given. And, but um, so... Diogenes, and he had a very similar word play. He had a very similar where he swapped out the kata for the peri, and he he uh, would would use those as insults. And I don't have time this morning, so Wednesday remind me. We'll pick up here, and I'll show you those insults. And uh, uh, <clears throat> just twisting a word with a little word play, and using it to to insult, you know, whatever group you want to insult. And uh, you know, uh, Diogenes was very scornful of, of Plato. He was very scornful of of the Euclideans. He was very uh, scornful of all these different groups. And so he would mock their schools, and he would call them by these names. And just by adding a letter, or twisting a letter, or changing a preposition, he uh, he came up with these pretty clever insults as he did there. And I think that's exactly what Paul's doing when he says, "Beware the mutilation, for we are the circumcision." And that uh, that makes his point loud and clear. All right. In any event, um, you say, well, it's childish. You say it's beneath the dignity of the office to be a name caller. And uh, well, if people remember it, and if it communicates, and if it makes the point, then God the Holy Spirit can inspire it and put it into the New Testament. And that's exactly what he's done. And he's done so here in this, uh, in this exact way. Father, I thank you for your truth. I thank you for the word of God. I thank you, Father, that it is alive and powerful. I thank you that it's sharp. I thank you that it pierces, it cuts. And Father, uh, it, uh, it calls a spade a spade, Father. And sometimes it does so in pretty vulgar terms. We've got some profanity in this chapter too, Father. And there's just some uh, interesting things that that you employ when you uh, are make, driving your point home in ways that, that uh, human beings can relate to. And I thank you for that. So open our eyes to these things. Clearly, uh, the, the warning is against Jewish legalism, Jewish arrogance. 
And uh, we all need to be on guard against that. You are opposed to the proud. You give grace to the humble. And I pray that like the Philippians, we would understand this warning loud and clear and that we too would uh, take steps to not be legalistic and to not be uh, imitators of the mutilators. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.